Tape number six. Tape number six is Robert McKee. Character driven versus plot driven. Thank you very much. Uh, this is argued uh, voraciously uh, uh, amongst uh, writers today. In fact, if you were here at 4 o'clock and heard uh, Stuart Onan and to Grafton talking, there were undercurrents of that debate between the two of them, in fact. Nicely, but there. And um, um, as if this were something new. Um, Aristotle looked at this question um, 2,300 years ago in the Poetics, and he asked the question indeed. What is more important in a story, the story told or the characters of whom it is told? And in fact, uh, Aristotle had a hierarchy of what's important in any work. He said, number one, plot. Number two, character. Number three, idea. Number four, dialogue. Number five, music. Number six and last, spectacle. He said, spectacle is the least creative aspect of a production. It is the least uh, important aspect of the production, it just costs money. In fact, Aristotle sounds like a Hollywood producer more than once in the poetics. Um, now, go to uh, Broadway. Go to the West End of London. Uh, go to the movies. In what order are things today? In absolute reverse order. Number one, spectacle, right? Number two, music, spin off the CD. Uh, number uh, three, witty dialogue. Number four, idea. Number four, in absolute reverse order. And this is not just uh, an aesthetic oddity or nicety. As Aristotle also said, he said, when the storytelling goes bad in a culture, the result is decadence. Now, just look around. Now, it's a chicken and egg question whether the decadence and corruption and vacuousness of American society or the world, for that matter, has led to a corruption of storytelling, or whether the bad storytelling has caused, I don't know, I'm sure that it's inseparable in some fashion, but it's not an uh, unimportant question. Um, indeed, spectacle, the easiest, the least creative, the least important aspect is now in too many cases, of course, the most important. Um, indeed, compare, for example, the last two Oscar winners. The Titanic and the abysmal, the English patient. They are absolute illustrations of exactly the reverse order of everything. What's interesting about these two Oscar winners is they are the mirror of each other. They are both spectacle. Three hours of storytelling containing at best, at best, 90 minutes of story. Dragged out for twice that length. If I had to watch that biplane fly over those goddamn sand dunes for just one more minute, I was going to set myself on fire. And the Titanic, those characters are so stereotypical, those actors could have stopped acting and just worn signs around their necks. A poor little rich girl the abusive fiance, the life-embracing artist, the manipulative mother, the stiff upper-lips British ship's captain. Just once, just once in a film, I'd like to see a scene where a British ship's captain says, I'm fucking scared, man. 
This boat's going down and I'm on it. Just once. You see, if you don't tell story, which is what the audience comes for, which is why the reader picks up your book, if you can't tell story, if you won't tell story, if you don't tell story, then you must do something else. You must hold their attention. You must somehow get them to turn the pages. You've got to keep them in your seats. If you ain't going to tell story, you've got to do something else. And that something else in film means spectacle. Either painterly photography on one hand or special effects on the other. Right? You got to do something. You got to send them out of the cinema thinking some positive thought. And I, for one, if I, I not you, sick and tired of coming out of films going, oh, it's beautifully photographed. It's wonderfully acted. And wasn't the music divine? My friends, when you've got somebody coming out of a film complimenting the photography means only one thing. You have failed. Utterly. That's a rationalization for having squandered eight bucks in three hours of their lives. They've got to somehow figure, I'm not a fool. There was something of value in this film, and so they start complimenting the photography. I mean, nobody came out of Silence of the Lambs going, oh, beautifully photographed, isn't it? <laughs> And the music, darling. The music in Silence of the Lambs is superb. I have the CD. It's a wonderful score. But they came out of that film thinking only one thought. Wow, what a great story. That is what they came for. If you don't deliver that, then you have to do something else. Have you read The English Patient? Booker Prize winner? Full of three-page descriptions of shadows on walls. I'm not joking, that's not exaggeration. Three-page descriptions from the English patient's point of view as he watched the transition of the shadows of the walls during the day on the, on the walls of this crumbling Italian villa. The speaker is taking about a five-second break there, and then he continues. About a five minutes. What did you think was going to happen? And so you have to stuff the screen full of unmotivated, illogical, cliche-written, romantic cliches in both of these films because neither writer could tell a story worth telling. And so they resorted to cliches of the worst kind and then the filmmakers saturate the screen with painterly photography or special effects. And then you get to sit there and say, but yeah, but both these films scooped up Oscars by the handful, rolling down the cheeks. And I thought, yeah, this is terrible cliche stuff for me. I've seen the poor little rich girl story since Barbara Stanwyck, right? But it hasn't been around for 20 years. 
cliche for me, but not for them. And then I thought, looking at both these films again, is that, um, yes, they are romantic cliches, uh, but this is an anti-romantic age we live in. Is it not? Young people scoff at romance now. You know, a gentleman starts opening the door from the car for a woman and whatnot, and, you know, sending flowers or poetry or whatever, he gets laughed at. Laughed at, oh yeah. Laughed at. What's he want? What's he's up to? Nobody takes that seriously much anymore. And so it's an anti-romantic age. I mean, look at the so-called contemporary love stories, things like Addicted to Love. It's a good film, right? Not about love, but about obsession. And so it's an anti-romantic age, and yet there's this hunger for romance. I mean, we have any idea what the romance novel industry is today? Billions of copies. I mean, they have their own bestseller list and so forth. And so there's this huge hunger for romance, and um, in, in simple terms, uh, uh, the Titanic and the English Patient are romance novels on screen. In an anti-romantic age, delivering romantic cliches, and somehow that satisfies people. But I'm telling you, we cannot civilize ourselves. We cannot build a fine culture of sensitive, intelligent, compassionate human beings based on films of this kind or novels of this kind. We need great writing. We need a light to shine into the dim corners of human nature and society and tell us our stories in fresh, powerful, insightful ways, and we cannot have a diet of this crap, or indeed, if you think that we're decadent now, the next century uh, looks to me like hell. And so, um, and so uh, Aristotle said, no, not spectacle. Story is number one. Character number two. <clears throat> this opinion held sway <clears throat> for centuries until the novel evolved out of the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries. And uh, the pendulum of opinion then swung in the other direction, and writers, and writers about writing were saying, no, no, character. What the reader wants from a really wonderfully told novel is memorable, complex, fascinating characters. Uh, the plot is just the mechanics. It's just a device. It's just a, a clothesline to hang your characters on. What the reader really wants is wonderful character. In the 20th century, this argument's gone back and forth, back and forth, uh, until today, as I said, couched in the terms I said, the so-called character-driven versus plot-driven, or the so-called literary novel or literary film versus genre film or novel and so forth. To me, this whole thing is a specious debate. You cannot ask the question, what's more important in a story, the story told, the plotting of it, um, or character, because they are the same thing. Story design is character. Character is event design. They're simply two sides of the same coin. One cannot be more important than the other. And the reason we have this debate is the people who argue this point inevitably fail to differentiate between what's known as characterization versus true character or deep character. And the difference between characterization and deep character is this. Characterization means all the observable qualities of a human being. Everything you could know about your character by sort of invisibly following them around day in and day out, taking notes. What is their age? What is their IQ? Uh, what is their sex or sexuality? What is their nervosity, so to speak? Are they introverted or extroverted? All aspects of their personality, their sense of humor. What is their education? What is their style of speech, style of dress, style of gesture? What kind of a job do they have? 
What kind of living does that make? Where do they live? What kind of automobile do they drive? What are their attitudes toward life? What are their values? What do they think is worth living for? What would they consider foolish to pursue? What would they give their life for? The sum total of all of these aspects of personality, style, physicality, locality, attitudes, values, the sum total of all of this is characterization. And in, when well done, the sum total of this makes the character unique. Every human being, indeed, is a unique combination of experience or genes that has shaped them into the kind of person they are today, unlike every other human being who has ever lived or is living. In that sense, every human being's characterization is somehow unique, and therefore every character, presumably well done, is a unique individual. But that is not who they are. True character or deep character can only be expressed by the way in which this character chooses under pressure to take one action or another in the pursuit of their desire and how they choose under pressure to act in the pursuit of desire is who they are and the greater the pressure the deeper and truer the choice to character. Deep down inside, despite all of the aspects of characterization that I said makes them unique, who is this person really? What is their deep human nature? Are they fundamentally honest or a liar? Are generous or selfish? Courageous or cowardly? Loving or cruel? Strong or weak? Wise or foolish? Deep down inside, despite all appearances, all observable traits, what is the true human nature of this character? Who are they really? And that true nature can only be known, and there is no other way except through choice under pressure. How they choose is who they are. Now, when I say choice under pressure, then, I'm not talking about simple right, wrong, good, evil decisions. The principle of choice is that if you put a character in a situation where they must choose simply the right or the wrong, the good or the evil, it is no choice at all. The reader or audience will always know in advance how your character will choose if you simply poise them in good, evil, right, wrong situations. Because that character will always choose the good or the right from that character's point of view. All human beings always do. They always choose the good or the right at every moment from their point of view as they have come to understand the good or the right. It's impossible to do otherwise. Nature will not allow it. You will always choose the good or the right from your point of view. But human points of view, of course, vary enormously. Um, when, for example, Attila the Hun was poised on the borders of Europe with his hordes in the 5th century, asking himself the question, should I invade Europe, murder, plunder, rape, burn, and lay waste, or should I go home? <laughs> From Attila's point of view, this is no choice at all. He knows immediately what he has to do. He has to invade, murder, plunder, burn, and lay, rape, and lay waste. I mean, that's what your hordes are for. You don't bring tens of thousands of warriors thousands of miles across the steppes of Russia so when you get to the prize, you go home. Now, from the point of view of the people inside of Europe, this is a dreadful, evil, wrong decision. But shit, that's their point of view. From Attila's point of view, this is not only the right thing to do, he probably thought it was the morally 
good thing to do since he was probably felt that he was on a, on a, sent on a, on a campaign by God in the first place. Most of the great tyrants in history, you know, all thought they were divinely inspired, from Genghis Khan to Hitler. You know that Hitler thought he was divinely inspired. Uh, if you want to read something interesting, sometimes just read up on the occult in Nazi Germany. These men were not atheists. They had invented their own little crazy religion. They followed it passionately and all thought they were on a mission from God to bring paradise to Europe once they killed the people who needed killing and they had their list. The worst of people. When some teenage crack addict bludgeons in the head of an old lady on the street for the five bucks in her pocketbook, as he brings that club down on that woman's skull, from that kid's point of view, that is the right thing to do. His arm will not move until he has rationalized himself into believing that this is the right thing to do. He may understand it's not the morally good thing to do, but as I'm sure sophisticated writers, you understand perfectly well that good, evil, right, wrong, or for that matter, legal, illegal, don't necessarily have anything to do with one another. He cannot move that arm until he's convinced himself this is the right thing to do. He may instantly regret it, but at the moment he murders that woman, he has thought himself to the point of believing this is the right and necessary thing to do. And if you don't understand that much about human nature, you understand very little. Human beings are only capable of acting toward the right or the good as they have come to believe it. So what is choice? What is pressure? The only real choice then in life, real pressure, is dilemma. Either the choice between irreconcilable goods, two things, the character doesn't want either of them, but circumstances are forcing the character to choose one. Or the lessers of two evils, two things the character doesn't want either of them, but circumstances are forcing him or her to choose one. And how a character acts in dilemma, choosing between irreconcilable goods or the lessers of two evils, that is real pressure. And as they choose in dilemma, then they reveal their true humanity. And so when I say pressure, I mean dilemma. True character is revealed and only revealed in choice in dilemma. There is no other way. No matter what you write about the character in description, no matter how you describe the psychology of the character or in first person have the character describe him or herself, no matter what is said about the character by other characters, none of this is true character. This is characterization. And the audience knows that what a character says of themselves may or may not be true, given that, in fact, you know, few of us have any real insight into our nature. What another character says about a character may or may not be true, given the axes that people have to grind, but that it is said, and by whom, is an important clue. The context and physical appearance and qualities of style of speech and voice, as you say, and all the rest of it, uh, is again very important, but it is characterization. And the audience waits for the mask of characterization to be stripped away, to penetrate to the true inner nature of that character, and that can only be done by choice under pressure. How they choose to act in the pursuit of their desire out of dilemma is who they are. Let me give an example. Uh, suppose we had a scene like this, um, uh, two automobiles going down the uh, freeway side by side. One is a rusted out old uh, Chevy station wagon, and in the back are buckets and mops and brooms and detergents, whatever, and this car is being driven by a woman who's an illegal alien in this country secretly, 
trying to eke out a living for uh, under-the-table cash, uh, cleaning people's homes to feed her family, her starving family, back home. Alongside her is a brand-new shiny Porsche, and in it is the richest, most brilliant, uh, successful neurosurgeon from the finest hospital in the city. Two people who, in terms of characterization, could not be more unlike. They have nothing of the same background or experience or education. They have nothing of the same attitudes or values, personality. They may not even speak the same language. In every way imaginable, they seem to be the opposite of one another. Then suddenly in front of them, uh, a school bus full of children uh, flips out of control, smashes against an underpass, bursts into flames, trapping the children inside. That's pressure. That's dilemma. Now we'll find out who these two people really are. Who chooses to stop? Who chooses to drive on by? They each have rationalizations for driving on by. The illegal thinks if she gets caught up in a scene like this and in the aftermath questioned by the police and she finds out she's illegal, they may turn her over to INS and she'll be thrown back across the border and her family will starve. The doctor rationalizes if he gets caught up in a scene like this and injured, burnt, these precious hands of his, burnt hands that perform miracle micro-operations on the human brain that only he has perfected, that the lives of hundreds of thousands of people into the future that he could save could all be in jeopardy. So they both could choose to drive on by, but let's say they don't. Let's say they choose to stop. Well, that says something uh, very significant about their character, but um, who's stopping to help and who's stopping because they're too hysterical to drive any further? Let's say they both stop to help. Fine. It says something more about who they really are, but who chooses that the way to help would be to uh, run to the nearest telephone or uh, pick up the uh, cell phone in his car and uh, dial 911 and wait? And who chooses that the way to help would be to go into the burning bus? Let's say they both rush toward the bus. There they are running across the freeway, kicking out windows of the bus, climbing inside, grabbing screaming children and pushing them to safety. When the heat inside this bus becomes such an inferno that the skin is peeling off their faces, they can't draw another breath without searing their own lungs and killing themselves. And they realize they've only got one more moment left to save one of the many children still inside. Who chooses to save the little white kid rather than the little black kid next to him? Who chooses to save the little girl rather than the little boy pleading next to her? Who, in other words, makes Sophie's choice. It may turn out to be that these two people who in terms of characterization seem so utterly unlike are soulmates. Deep down inside the same fundamental human being, a human being willing to sacrifice or even give their life uh, for strangers on a heartbeat. Or it may turn out to be that in the midst of this tremendously heroic act, suddenly are revealed deep occultured biases and prejudices they didn't even know were inside themselves until that moment. Or it may turn out to be that the character we thought would act courageously is revealed to be a coward. The person we thought would act cowardly is revealed to be a hero. But the point is that the mask of characterization will be ripped away and the audience will see in that choice to the inner life of this character, to their true deep humanity, even to their unconscious self that the character him or herself may not have been aware of until these terrible choices are suddenly in front of them. And so the function of, of structures, we say, the function of event design in a story is to provide pressure. 
pressure of a progressively building kind to force characters into situations where they must make more and more difficult choices at greater and greater risk to themselves in order to, re to re at the very least, reveal the true or deep humanity of that character. And this is minimal in principal characters, in tertiary, even secondary characters, perhaps not. But in principal characters, the reader, the audience, has at least that much expectation that the mask of characterization will be ultimately stripped away through the course of this work, and I will have a perception to the true inner life of this character, their true character, that will be there in contrast or contradiction to characterization. The function of story design is to provide pressure to force characters into situations where they must make choices in dilemma and to take one action or another in pursuit of desire to at the very least reveal their true character in contrast or contradiction to characterization. Because the reader audience knows the grand principle that nothing is what it seems. They know that characterization is not true character. They know that people are not what they appear to be. What seems is the surface of life. What we see, what we hear, what people say, what they do. What is the truth is the inner life hidden underneath that surface. And they expect to see that true character revealed in contrast or direct contradiction to characterization. In other words, if you write a character, who, when we open the book or start the film or play or whatever, is, um, is shown to be a loving husband and father. And through trial and tribulation over the course of the story, they are finally revealed to be a loving husband and father. You have a very unhappy audience. <laughs> Not that such people don't exist. It's just that they're going to be as boring on page or screen as they are in life and untrue. And the audience knows, untrue. No one is what they appear to be. And a little bit of a moment's reflection on your own inner life, you know that absolutely. Each one of us harbors a whole other person, full of God knows what vanities and vices, and aspirations and ideals that we do not show the world. This is who we are, we know, up to a point who we are, and we know that we must wear a social mask in order to get through our days, doing the best we can for ourselves and for others, where there's a whole other, other human being lurking inside of us, right? For some of us, more than one of these guys. <laughs> and the audience expects that as a minimum, that you will reveal the true human nature of this, of this character in contradiction, if not at least contrast, to what they appear to be. This is minimal, minimal, as you must do. And for many stories and many genres, sufficient. A revelation of true character that contradicts characterization uh, for many stories is just, just wonderful and sufficient. Uh, compare, for example, two characters. Um, what went wrong uh, with Rambo? Do you remember Rambo's first film, a film called First Blood? In First Blood, he was actually an interesting character, a character right? because he had a characterization. He was this burnt out, depressed Vietnam, this uh, vet, this social isolate, uh, walking through this uh, mountainous region, wanting to be left alone. But then the sheriff, for no good reason other than an excess of testosterone, uh, provoked him. And out came Rambo. 
a revelation of true character to contradict his characterization. That was wonderful. But the trouble was that once Rambo came out, he wouldn't go back in. <laughs> and for the sequels, he strapped on the bandoliers, the bullets, and the red bandana, and the grease pumped up muscles. And now his characterization matches true character. He is what he appears to be, superhero. Compare that to James Bond. There have been almost 20 James Bond films, and they'll go on making one a year, and why not? Because we enjoy this game. And the game is the revelation of true character to contradict characterization. When James first comes on the screen, we often meet him at a posh cocktail party, dressed in a tuxedo, uh, dangling cocktail glasses off his fingertips, uh, chatting up beautiful women. Uh, he's, he's a lounge lizard. But then we discover that under this lounge lizard characterization is a kind of thinking man's Rambo. And the revelation of superhero to contradict lounge lizard characterization is a delight. And even though we know the game, we enjoy playing it 20 times over. So that much, as I said, is minimal. Fine writing, of course, goes uh, one critical step further. Not only does the writer reveal true character in contradiction to characterization, but then over the course of the story, they arc, as we say, that inner nature. This character, this true deep character, will undergo a critical change, for better or worse, through the course of the story. Because ultimately, that is a, what a story is. The story, as we say, is metaphor for life. We are, in a very real way, life poets. And events are our rhyme scheme. And what a story says, in essence, is how and why life undergoes change. How and why the conditions of life, whether it be the inner life of a human being, their true deep nature, their outer lives, their fortunes in the world, their relationships with people, or some combination of all of that, how, life under, how and why life undergoes change for better or worse. That is ultimately what a story expresses, is some kind of arc of change, often more than one turn, but it is about change, and it is, expresses deeply how and why change takes place. And so in James Bond, change, change takes place in the world. The world is infested with some, with some injustice, with some villain who's out to destroy civilization as we know it to today, insecure. By the end of the film, he has been destroyed, and the world has returned to justice and security. And so the outer life changes from worse to better in a James Bond, um, but um, in other stories, of course, we want to take that character. We may or may not change the outer life. Certainly we may. Uh, but primarily what we're trying to do in a deep sense is arc the inner life of a character to express not just how our situations in life or the conditions of life may change, but how we as human beings, in fact, for better or worse, how and why we undergo change. So take, for example, a, uh, a beautifully written screenplay and film by David Mamet, directed by Sidney Lumet, entitled The Verdict. When the uh, protagonist of this film first comes on screen, he's nicely dressed in a three-piece suit. We discover he's an attorney, and he looks like Paul Newman. <laughs> Handsome in an unfair way. <laughs> I think this is right, don't you? That this is categorically unfair, that anyone gets to go through life looking that good. Would you like to hear a uh, Paul Newman story? Um, some years ago, a friend of mine was in an ice cream parlor in West Los Angeles. And as she was picking out her ice cream, who walked in but Paul Newman? 
And she told me later, she thought, my God, my God, it's Paul Newman. Now, for Christ's sake, don't be gauche. Don't gawk at the man. Don't ask for his autograph. He's just a human being coming in here for ice cream like everybody else. Give him his privacy. And so she held herself together and uh, uh, picked out her ice cream, paid for it. But when she got to the street, she discovered she did not have her ice cream. <laughs> so she stood out there pondering what to do, what to do, and, uh, and she, uh, she rationalized. She said, well, what the hell? This happens, right? This happens. Uh, people leave things in stores all the time, and, uh, and I have paid for it after all. And so she pulled herself together, marched back into the shop, and confronted the clerk, and she said, excuse me, excuse me, I, I paid for my ice cream, but I don't have it, so I must have left it here on the counter. Have you got it back there? He said, no, lady, I gave you your ice cream. And she said, well, I don't have it, so I must have left it here, and she starts an argument. And Paul Newman leaned over and he said, it's in your purse. What I mean by handsome in an unfair way. Uh, but then quickly in the verdict, through choice under pressure, we discover a man who is uh, deeply corrupted and, um, and uh, suicidally self-destructive. He, um, he tries to make a living reading the newspapers each day and, and uh, scanning the obituary column, looking for people who have uh, perished in automobile or industrial accidents. And then he goes to the funerals of these poor souls, pretending to be an acquaintance of the dead man, as, who obviously can't speak for himself, uh, passing out his business card to the grieving relatives, trying to drum up some insurance claims. And uh, terribly self-destructive. He's a hopeless alcoholic, committing slow suicide with booze. There's a marvelous scene where he goes into his local bar, stand there and drink with his drinking buddies, and he turns to them and he says, you know, this morning I cut myself shaving so badly my eyes cleared up. <laughs> and then finally, in a drunken rage, he trashes his own office. He uh, smashes all the furniture, uh, rips the diplomas off the wall, smashes them, and crumples into a drunken, unconscious heap on the floor. He is a lost soul. But then comes the case. The case of a poor woman in a lifelong coma, put into the state by an act of terrible malpractice in a Catholic Hospital in Boston. And he comes to uh, realize as he looks at his poor client in her coma in the hospital that this is not, and he's given this case, by the way, by a, a friend of his. Um, he's just given the case to handle because it's a sure moneymaker. Uh, and his friend gives him that as just charity, some chance to make some fast bucks. But as he looks at this poor woman, he realizes this is not just an opportunity to make some money. This is his last chance. If he cannot do what's right for this woman, if he cannot sober up and become the kind of tough, resourceful, uh, brilliant attorney that he had been in the past, if he, cannot, um, if he cannot do the right thing for this woman and clean up his act and hold himself together, he will never have another chance. This is his last chance. But if he does it right, perhaps this can be the vehicle he rides to his own salvation. And so um, he determines to do that. And, of course, he's tempted terribly. Talk about choice under pressure. There's a scene where um, he's invited into the archbishop's office, uh, and the church uh, tells him that uh, they would be happy to settle out. Um, and uh, he's offered a check for $210,000.
And as he stares down at that check uh, quietly, the archbishop says, um, is there a problem? And the attorney looks up and he says, no, no. I was just noticing how easily 210,000 is divided by three. I mean, why 210,000? Because they wanted him to understand that his one-third legal fee, $70,000, is in his hands. All he has to do is walk out the door. But he hands the check back and says, no, no I can't do it. And so he goes to battle for this woman. <clears throat> He's betrayed right and left. <clears throat> it is such a terrible experience for him. His attempt to resurrect his soul, his attempt to bring back his uh, best self is so frightening to this character that it causes claustrophobia and nauseousness and, uh, and the panics and uh, he hyperventilates. Remember this film? That a man so afraid of what changes ahead that he might, you know, somehow change. He's so frightened by change, it panics him over and over and over again, but he fights through his own demons and manages by the end of the film, of course, to do what's right, to get more than justice for this woman. And in the process, he is finally, at the end of the film, sober, self-possessed, uh, and not just a, a competent attorney, but a rather brilliant and ethical attorney, the kind of man, as I said, he'd been in the past before he fell into the bottle, in the abyss. And so this pattern's as old as Oedipus Rex. You see a character in the early going, and a characterization is given to you. Early in the story, choices under pressure, choices in dilemma, will reveal the true nature of that character to contrast and contradict that characterization. And then the writer will go about telling a story that will, as we say, arc that character somehow on one level or another, bring about a great transformation in Oedipus's case for worse and the verdict's case for the better. But somehow the character, the deep true character, is not the same at the end of the tale as it was at the beginning. Life in the deepest sense has undergone change. And so the function, to say it again, and the function of <coughs> plot. Now I know um, this is a pejorative term, by the way, before. I get into this. this is a, plot has become a pejorative term in the writer's vocabulary. You meet people all over in Hollywood and elsewhere saying, I'm not into plots. I'm not a plot person. I don't like plotty books or novels, right? I write literary novels, you know, art movies and so forth. I'm not into plot. And that's sad because plot is a perfectly good term when you think of it as a verb. This is a term we've borrowed from navigators and map makers to plot <clears throat> means to cho make choices, like your character, you too must make choices, as to what to include, what to exclude, what to put before and after what, in order to plot your way through the dangerous territory, not now across an ocean or a continent, but through the most dangerous territory I know, the territory of story. Often when you see a film like uh, The Tender, Mer uh, Tender Mercies or Accidental Tourist or something, uh, critics will review it and say, well, it doesn't have a plot, but it's good anyway. In fact, there are certain critics that will plot a film because it has no plot. Tender Mercies has no plot. Accidental tourist, leaving Las Vegas. Tender Mercies is exquisitely plotted in the most dangerous territory I know, the genre known as the education plot, in which the arc of the story <coughs> will not be a moral transformation, such as in the verdict, but will be a transformation in attitude. So what will happen within the protagonist is that they'll undergo an education, as we say. They will undergo a whole new, they will discover a whole new way of seeing life or themselves in it. Their attitude toward life or themselves will go through some sort of revolution, some kind of re-education. 
In Tender Mercies, it's the story of a character, the Max Sledge character played by Robert uh, Duvall, who comes into the film, again, an alcoholic, uh, uh, and a man who has hit rock bottom. He has no family, he has no career, he has no spirituality, he has no reason for living, and so he's not, he's killing himself with booze because he finds life meaningless. He has nothing to live for. And over the course of the story, of course, he gathers together a meaning for life. <clears throat> What's wonderful about Tender Mercies is that the cliche is a person, if they're going to find a meaning for life in such a case, will find that one thing, the one thing worth living for. They'll find God, find love, find art. They'll find the one thing worth living for. But nobody who's alive, of course, has any insight knows that that's not possible. So if you're going to lead a meaningful life, it's because you cobble together work, love, God, whatever. You cobble together bits and pieces of things. You gather enough meaning into your life. You have a meaningful life. There never is that one thing. And Horton Foote, of course, won an Oscar for that. He's a great Pulitzer Prize winning playwright. He's far too sophisticated a writer to think, did you ever find meaning in life out of one thing? And so he tells this beautiful story about a man gathering a meaningful life <clears throat> for himself that is severely tested, of course, when uh, he discovers, just as he's gathering together this life, uh, the meaningless and tragic, uh, absurd death of his uh, only child, an automobile accident <clears throat> that happens immediately after the two of them have a moment where they cannot reconcile. And so if, any, uh, if anything would throw a drunk back in the bottle, that'd be it, wouldn't it? The death of your only child just after she came to you, wanting help, wanting a father, and you weren't able to do it. And so uh, uh, that dragon of meaninglessness then rears its ugly head again in this man's life, but we see he has the power, he has the character now, the meaning necessary to face down meaninglessness one more time and go on with his life in a meaningful way. And so this is a very, the you know, this is a snap for the writer. The education plot is the meat and potatoes of novel because the novelist can directly invade in first or third person the inner lives of characters and dramatize the struggle within. But you cannot drive a camera lens through an actor's forehead and photograph what's inside. You have to create what T.S. Eliot, stealing from Herzl or somebody said, um, uh, the objective correlative. You have to create that object on screen that correlates to that inner life. You cannot in voiceover narration or God help you in dialogue think that by having a character talk about their inner life that we're actually going to believe anything that comes out of the character's mouth in that regard. Even on, even on the soundtrack, even on narration. It's all bullshit. And so we only believe what we see. We see choice under pressure. How a character chooses to act is who they are. And so, um, and so uh, uh, one of the great problems, just as a sidebar here, of adapting novels and plays to the screen is you have to take what is absolutely interior and easily described in the novel and <clears throat> make it exterior. John Carpenter once said, he said, um, film is about making mental things physical. Making mental things verbal is easy compared to making mental things physical. And I hope you understand that. One of the reasons we have so many bad films in this world is that screenwriting is hard. Real hard. Not better than or worse than but technically far more difficult than the novel or the play. It's extremely difficult. It is the great challenge to the filmmaker, how to do on screen what the novelist can do on page and do it easily, relatively easily. I mean, I'm a, not the novel's a magnificent art form, you have to do it beautifully, but I'm only talking about degree of difficulty. 
You have to write wonderfully, of course, in order to describe the inner life in a fresh, vibrant way. But uh, that can be done uh, compared to the extreme difficulty of bringing the inner life as Horton Foote did in Tender Mercies, or as Larry Kasdan did in adapting Ann Tyler in Accidental Tourist, to bring the inner life to the screen by implication, and only implication, without a word of dialogue, without a word of narration about the inner life. It's extremely difficult. And so this is a very fragile form. So you can believe that Horton Foote sweated blood over the plotting of tender mercies. One scene that should have been there that isn't, one scene that isn't there that should have been, one misordering of things in this fragile form collapses like a castle of cards. And so we all plot our stories. We all make choices as to what events to include, to exclude, to put before and after what. All stories are in that sense plotted. And so, uh, and so the, 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 the plotting of the story, of course, is the mirror of character. Character, the, pre the function of character is to bring to the story the qualities of characterization that are necessary to convincingly act out these choices under pressure. The character must be young enough or old enough, rich enough, poor enough, worldly or naive, educated or ignorant, um, uh, strong or weak. They must have one end for every character that's different the right combination of characterization traits that the reader or audience believes. Finds credible. Yes, I believe this character could be doing what I see him or her doing, making the choices they're making, taking the actions they're taking. And so the characterization then is there to make credible the choices the characters make under pressure to take one action or another. And so that, as I said, they're simply two sides of the same coin. The function of the design of the events of a story is to provide conflict, pressure of a progressively building kind to at the very least reveal and possibly change true character. The function of character is to provide the qualities of characterization needed to convincingly act out those choices and take those actions. The events of a story then are the choices and actions of character. The characters are the human beings who are revealed and or perhaps changed deeply by the way in which they choose to act under pressure. They're just two sides of the same coin. If you change one, you change the other automatically. For example, suppose you were writing a story and you finish it, and there's a key scene in this work in which a character under great pressure tells the truth and suffers the consequences. Fine, it's a good scene, you think, but overall, the story just doesn't work. You're unhappy with it. And so now you're going to try to rewrite it. How to fix that, how to rework it. You could come at it from either direction. You could come at it from the point of view of event design or from character, because it won't matter, they're going to meet in the middle. You could sit back and look at that scene and say, no, I'm going to reverse that scene. I'm going to change that event. And he's going to, he's not going to tell the truth and suffer consequences. He's going to lie and benefit. And that'll take the story in another direction. And so you reverse that event. He doesn't tell truth and suffers. He tells lie and benefits. Fine. So you've now redesigned the events of your story. And what have you done as well? Totally reinvented the character. In the first draft, he tells truth under pressure. He's an honest man. In the second, he lies under pressure. He's a liar. He's a dishonest person. These are two absolutely different people. They may have the same characterization, work at the same job, have the same family, the same sense of humor, the same style of dress, and all the rest of it. They may be outwardly identical. But inwardly, one is honest, 
the other a liar. And if both of these films should be made, uh, the, the difference between these two characters is so radical, you would need um, totally different casting. If you made the truth-telling version, you might want uh, Robert Redford. Because I think Robert Redford's ever played a character who doesn't tell the truth, has he? I mean, even when he's playing bad guys, he's sort of honest bad guys, right? Uh, whereas if you made the lying version, you might want Robert De Niro, or Robert Duvall, or Gene Hackman, somebody capable of, of uh, duplicity. Or the other way around. The story doesn't work. And so you take your character aside, and you dream about the character, and you think and cozy up to the character, and you get to know the character. And, and as you get to know it, you go, no, 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 I hate, no, he's, he's too sweet, too Pollyanna. He's, he's always telling the truth. And, suffering and whatnot. Now, he, now, I, I, he'd be much more interesting if he lied, if he were a dishonest man. I'll make him a liar. And you reverse the psychology of this character. So now what do you have to do? You have to completely reinvent the story design in order to express the dishonest, lying nature of this character. It becomes a whole new story. A whole new structure has to be invented to express a whole new event vehicle to express the utterly changed nature of this character. And you'd be amazed at how writers resist this sort of thing. Um, I've worked in, in consulting on many projects. You know, I'm an uh, occasional script doctor. Although, as I've told many producers, yes, I am a script doctor, but I cannot resurrect the dead. <laughs> and uh, they'll come to you with a very problem script, and we'll work with the writer and talk about it. And the writer goes off and comes back two weeks later saying, Bob, I got a whole new take on the protagonist, a whole new idea for the star role. And they lay out this new psychology. And I go, oh, certainly needs it. Great, great, I like that. Good, okay, you've made some wonderful changes. Yes, this is a new guy, I like this guy. He's much more interesting. Now, what are you gonna do about the story? And they blurber and they go, oh no, no, the story stays the same. <laughs> so how can the story stay the same if you've reinvented this character? If you've got a, a new character, you have to invent a whole new story to express who this person is and the change they're going, undergoing. If you don't change the story, what if you change his hair color? If you have a whole new human being in the, at the level of true humanity, deep character, you have to reinvent the story to express this. And so the events of a story are the choices and actions of the characters. The characters are the human beings revealed by the way they choose to act under pressure. It's just, they're just two sides of the same coin. As I said, one cannot be more important than the other. Now, all of this, of course, is very symmetrical and neat uh, until perhaps you come up to the business of endings, the story climax. Uh, it's difficult to put um, numbers or percentages to the creative process, but if we did arbitrarily, let us say that a finished manuscript, obviously, represents 100% of, cr of the creative effort that went into writing it. Fine. Most writers I know of experience, certainly screenwriters, playwrights, will tell you that 75 or 80% of that creative effort went into designing the events of that story. Who are these characters? What do they want? Why do they want it? More importantly, how do they go about trying to get it? What is stopping them when they do? Whether it comes from their own inner life because of their own worst enemy, or forces from without, from people and personal, social, or even the forces of Mother Nature, what is stopping them when they do? What are the consequences of those actions? Ultimately, that is 75 or 80% of the creative effort. The writing of dialogue or description is a relatively minor part of the creative effort compared to the overwhelming task of designing this perfect integration of character, 
and, and event. As Hitchcock once said, when the screenplay has been written and the dialogue has been added, we're ready to shoot. That is the proper weighting of this thing. The dialogue is the last thing you write when you work, as I advocate in my book, from the inside out. It is a wonderful embellishment. It is only what people say. It must be done well, but it's not who they are. It's only an indication of who they are, who they might be. And so uh, 75 or 80 percent goes into the designing of um, this mesh of character and event. And, and again, of that 75 or 80 percent of the work that goes into designing <coughs> the events of a story, 75 or 80 percent of that is creating the story climax, the climax of the last act, however many there may be, three, four, five, six, seven, eight acts climax of the story or in a multi-plot story, the yoking of all those stories together, whatever constitutes the story climax, this is the most difficult creative task of all. As somebody once said, uh, writing is easy. It's just a matter of staring at the blank page until your forehead bleeds. <laughs> and if anything will bring blood out of your forehead, it's that one, creating the story climax. It is, if, if you do not, the, the, the work fails utterly, or virtually. Um, you must always remember, story is temporal art, not plastic art. Your relatives in the world of art are not painting and architecture and sculpture and still photography. Your cousins are music and dance. The temporal art forms, and one of the great principles of all temporal art is thou shalt save the best for last. The last movement of the ballet, the coda of the symphony, the story climax, must be the most deeply satisfying moment of all. It is the final concentration of all meaning and emotion in the work, the final and most profound revelation of deep character. It is the payoff for which everything else is a setup, and until you've created that, you don't have anything. Until you've come up with a brilliant, satisfying, wonderful, comic or tragic, deeply moving, revealing story climax, everything prior to that is nothing more or less than an elaborate typing exercise. And so let's say you've come up with a great one. Uh, you got a great story climax. Oh, let me think. Uh, oh, I know. It's a chase. That's it. It's a chase. Three days and three nights across the blazing sands of the Mojave Desert. Good guy and bad guy pursuing each other to the brink of exhaustion and dehydration and even delirium. And there in the midst of this great vast wasteland, they fight it out and one kills the other. And you love that ending. Wonderful. And then you look at your protagonist. He's 75 years old. He's got a crippled leg and an allergy to dust. And you know there's no way. That, and what's worse, what's worse, uh, Peter Ustinov wants to play him. As soon as you can get that ending sorted out. But you know there's no way that chubby, sneezing, limping old Peter Ustinov could possibly convincingly act out three days and three nights across the Mojave. So then what do you do? You go back, as any smart writer would, to that first page where the character is introduced and it says Jack, parenthesis 75, and you take a little white out and you change that seven to a three. You rework the characterization. You haven't touched true character. 
Because whether he's 35 or 75, deep down inside, he's the human being with the will and the tenacity to go to the end of the line out there in the desert. But he must be credible. I don't even know a great silent film uh, by Eric von Stroheim called Greed. Many of you. The climax of greed is the one I just described. It is three days and three nights across the Mojave. Uh, in fact, von Stroheim shot this sequence in the Mojave, of course, but in July. And they say that the temperature on the floor of the desert at noon every day was going up to over 130 degrees Fahrenheit. And he almost killed cast and crew. But he didn't care. Because, because it was Eric von Stroheim. And, uh, and he got what he wanted. And what he got is this. Here, finally, on this vast white-on-white-on-white -on -white -on -white landscape of desert stretching to a hazy horizon, not even a mountain in view, under the scorching sun, hero and villain finally confront one another. They grapple, they struggle, and the villain picks up a rock and with it crushes in the head of the hero. But the hero, with his last moment of consciousness, manages to reach up and handcuff himself to his killer. The last famous image of this film is the villain collapsing into the dust, chained to the corpse he just killed. As they say in dialogue, a hundred miles from the nearest water. That is a great fucking ending. <laughs> You come up with an action as powerful as that, an image, an irony as wonderful as that, and you'll be in all the film textbooks too. So I guess ultimately Aristotle was correct in that story structure, the event design of a story is more important than characterization. But true character and the event design are the same thing. So why do we have the debate? Why, 2,300 years later, are we still arguing uh, character-driven versus plot-driven, to put it in today's vernacular? Why are we still arguing about this? Clearly, anyone who understands the aesthetics of story design knows that this is all bullshit. So why do we have this debate? Well, I'll tell you why. It's got nothing to do with aesthetics. This is politics. This is the politics of the literary novel versus the genre novel. This is the politics of so-called Hollywood film versus so-called art movie. This is the politics of taste. All stories are character driven. The James Bond series is driven by a character named James Bond. And every one of those films is a beautiful delineation of Bond's character and perfectly appropriate. And it would be inappropriate in Bond to have him suddenly get struck by some memory of a childhood trauma. It was just... <laughs> All stories are characters. You don't want complex characters in Monty Python. You want comic archetypes. If you have complex characters, it'll distract us from all the wonderful satire and wit and charm and fun of these great films. In James Bond, it would distract us from the daring do, which is the pleasure here. It's a question of appropriateness. The relative complexity of character must be adjusted to the genre or combination of genres in which you're writing. And if you're writing action films, you need appropriately uh, uh, one-dimensional or maybe two-dimensional characters 
You want a revelation, perhaps, of deep character to contradict characterization, but you cannot have too many of these dimensions, or as I tell them, uh, dimension simply means character, contradiction. A dimension is a contradiction either within the nature of a character, such as Macbeth's contradiction between guilt and, and, um, and uh, ambition, uh, or between true character and characterization, between the way the character appears in the world and who they really are. That's a dimension, it's contradiction. And you can't have too many of these dimensions within a character in action, adventure, or farce. It's distracting. On the other hand, if you are writing in the education story, or the counterpoint of that we call the disillusionment story, where like uh, the vicious, M Mrs. Parker in The Vicious Circle, you start with a character who's optimistic and hopeful, and uh, through repeated bitter experiences, they end up disillusioned. The, uh, the uh, punitive plot, where a person comes into the story morally good and ends up corrupted and is punished. The Reformation plot, where a character comes in, like in the verdict, morally corrupt and comes out having resurrected themselves to a moral human being. When you're working in domestic drama, perhaps, when you're working in those genres that demand complexity of character, you have to do that. It's not as if you've got a choice. What the choice you have is genre, or what genres to combine. And anybody who's sitting here when I say that thinking, well, I'm not a genre writer, is wrong. You are all genre writers. There's no such thing as writing outside the genres. No one in this room is about to invent a whole new storytelling genre after 2,300 years. All the genres are in place and multitude of subgenres within each, and you're working within uh, one or another or a combination of all of these. And once you understand the genre in which you are writing, then you'll recognize that it's demanding a certain complexity of character relative to the work, to the genre. And so it's a matter of appropriateness. In certain genres, characters must be deliberately uh, kept to a one or two <coughs> dimensions. Others demand greater than that. Some demand change, some don't, and on and on. And so you have to understand the genre you're writing in and adjust your character appropriately. And so the character-driven versus plot-driven debate, from my point of view, is politics, it's not art. People who, who write so-called character-driven stories are saying to themselves in a smug way often that they are superior to the people who write genre stories of one kind or another uh, because they don't deal in this trash called uh, plotting. They just write, you know, as the with that the conceit, the character comes to life and leads me to my story. Right? All that means, there's no such thing. All that means is that the writers reach the saturation point of research. The character now seems to be alive, but it's you. The characters are just alter egos for yourself. You understand that. And so when the character talks to you, you know, you're just having a schizophrenic episode, right? <laughs> but it's a game we play in our heads, and it works. And so we do that, OK? But there's a, this is bitter, this is bitter uh, often antagonism uh, between uh, genre writers and so-called literary or art movie makers and whatnot, and uh, I promise you there is no there is no necessary contradiction between commercial success and art, nor is there any promise of art in an art movie. And so ultimately, then it's a question of appropriateness. You design character to genre. You design event character character to event. They all ultimately meet in the middle. Uh, let me thank you very much, and uh, I'll take questions if there are.
take too many questions. Uh, we're going to do it again tomorrow afternoon. Good morning. Okay. Um, is this working? No, no, this is. Tell me. This is. In our 26 years of the conference, and I say this totally sincerely, I don't think I've heard a more valuable talk. Not only for the beginning writer, but a few things, and I won't tell him what he said tonight that helped me. I've written 27 books, but he helped me. I'm having trouble with a novel, the ending, and I won't tell him why, because it'll go to his head. Uh, and we'll hear more tomorrow uh, if he wants to take a few more questions, but he's got a lot of signing to do. If you haven't read his book, Story, get it. It is... The most, it, you don't have to be a screenwriter to write it because it's the elements of story, which he was talking to tonight. Here are a few questions, and I'll try to repeat them when I hear them. Will you repeat Yeah, I, I, we got maybe 10 minutes for questions, then I'll sign books. Yes, sir. Autobiographical work. Well, uh, uh, when you're working from biographical or or autobiographical material, my uh, uh, take on it is you treat it like fiction. It is fiction. You're going to take a life that took hundreds of thousands of hours to live awake and sleeping and reduce it to two, three hundred pages or two hours on the screen. You have now radically distorted that life out of all virtual recognition, right? In service of what you believe to be the truth of that life. And so you must feel free to cut things, combine things, eliminate characters, create characters, rearrange events and whatnot. I mean, short of, you know, insulting the common sense of the reader. You can't have, you know, FDR running in the Olympics or something. Uh, but, um, but other than that, but the only, the only caution, and, and I, the only caution I give you about autobiographical writing is, first of all, all writing is autobiographical. Whether you're writing science fiction or romances, Every choice you make, starting with the genre, character, setting, and event, reveals you, your humanity, or lack of it. And uh, I would point out, you know, Socrates said uh, uh, the unexamined life is not worth living, but I would also point out that the unlived life is not worth examining. <laughs> and so you got to be very careful when you're going to write autobiographically that it isn't, you know, and another thing about autobiography. All statements of self are self-serving. You've got to ask, why, why am I writing this the way in which you never have to ask in fiction? Why do I think my life and what has happened to me or my family or some friend I'm writing about or whatever's happened to them is so goddamn valuable that millions of people want to read about it? And you'll often find rocks in your path, writing biographically or autobiographically, that you just cannot get around and you find yourself wishing, in fact, you were writing other fiction. And so um, I think writing autobiography is very dangerous. Uh, uh, and I, I, I take, a, I take a, uh, the view that you just, you know, that, that you write autobiographically as long as it works, and if it doesn't, you turn it into a Ramona Cleef and fuck it, you know? <laughs> just change everything. And, because it's a story that matters. It's what you have to say not about your life, it's what you have to say about life that matters. And so when your life doesn't cooperate, you chuck your own life and go in another direction. And, uh, and if you're not free to do that, then you can get stuck, terribly stuck, and 
I've never written about myself, but I, everything I write is about myself. I'm. Uh, one more question. Anybody else? Uh, yes, ma'am. Novels, yes. I'm just repeating so they can hear. Applying what? Oh, I think, I mean, I hate to say it, but I close, I close half-read most of the novels I pick up these days. Because I find uh, uh, too many novels today are really dreadful storytellers. And they go on and on describing uh, the scenes and experience and whatnot. Uh, and they may be able to turn a nice scene, and, and, but it never accumulates into anything. And it has, it, it, to me, I mean, too much of it is just, um, it's, 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 um, Look, in, I said today that, you know, in film and on Broadway, we have spectacle substituting for story as a distraction, right? I mean, this, this, these painterly photographies, uh, photograph films, and special effects, this stuff is very important. It's there to distract the audience from the fact that this story is not worth telling. That's what we do on Broadway. That's what we do in the movies. But in the novel, you have the, the exact equivalent called description or long passages of self-explanatory dialogue. And you fill pages full of description, that, you know, of, you know of, of clouds and trees and you know, bleeding bodies on battlefields or whatever. You paint the pages with long, elaborate descriptions in order to avoid story and to call this literary. And a little of this goes a long way. I mean, not that you shouldn't describe vividly and wonderfully. But I say that, you know, that for the most part, it's, it, it, it can't be there as simply uh, an, uh, an adornment and, and, and not, indeed, somehow relate in any unified work of art. Every line of description ultimately relates to the core of the story, the spine of the story, the deep desire in the protagonist to restore the balance of life, and that none of it is fact. And the marginalia that uh, the modern writer, to me, uh, indulges in, um, uh, the, the kind of blurry surfaces. Um, I, I, you know, I can read some of this, but it gets to be tedious after a while. And when I certainly feel that there's no ending here, and I get the sense that this book's that's not going anywhere that I want to go, uh, I close them. And so, um, and so, uh, uh, you know, you want to. By the way, you want to know the odds as an example. This I don't know what this proves, but it proves something. Of every 50 novels for which serious money is paid for the screen rights, one gets made. Of every 20 original screenplays for which serious money is paid for the screen rights, one gets made. And the reason it's two and a half times harder to get a novel to the, to the, to the screen is because the stories within them are either uncinematic, which is just great. I mean, the novelist is taking the advantage of dramatizing the story on the level of inner conflict. It is a pure literary novel, a great work of art in that sense when it works. You know, it's Proust. And it's all on the level of inner conflict and a Joyce or Virginia Woolf or whatever, and therefore uncinematic, but a magnificent work. It's either uncinematic or badly told. And a story so badly told that no one can make it work, and so they perish, 49 to 1. And so I, w I would say that, you know, uh, not that I, I, uh, you know, I'm anything like an expert, as many of the people in this room are on contemporary li literature. My, my impression is, though, that the storytelling um, ain't what it used to be. I was, um, 
at uh, the Hay NY Festival of Books, and I uh, listened to the playwright David Hare give a talk. You know David Hare, the Skylight, and so forth. And uh, and uh, he said he said you know he says I'm finally I'm really going back to structure. What fascinates me now is structure. And so he's written a thing called the Judas Kiss. It's in New York now, where the second first and second acts mirror one another. Okay, he found that structurally interesting. Oh, really, and. Uh, could be, I don't know. Uh, but then he said, you know, but now, he said, in fact, now what I'm doing is I'm rereading and studying Eugene O'Neill. And I thought, thank fucking God. <laughs> if there's anything that's gone wrong with the modern theater is that if you're lucky, it's a two-act play. What is more likely, it's a one-act play, talk, talk, talk to fucking death for two and a half hours. And in the golden age of the English stage, Throughout this century, the great playwrights, Tennessee Williams, Arthur Miller, O'Neill, Deed, uh, Lillian Hellman, uh, Terence Radigan, George Bernard Shaw, Oscar Wilde, uh, and on and on, the great playwrights of, the, uh, of this century never had any trouble taking a story to the end of the line. Two, three, and four acts of progressive complications to bottom out characters and bring them to the limit of human experience with beautiful closure, power, comic or tragic. But nowadays, playwrights just wander around, yap, 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 substituting their version of spectacle, which is talk. Wonderful language, talk, 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 in which nothing happens. You know, and Aristotle, again, said, you know, he said this in his very scientific way, he said, there's some relationship between the magnitude of the work and the number of major reversals necessary to tell the story. By magnitude of work, he meant how long it takes to perform on stage or read in Homer and so forth. And I think what Aristotle was telling us, for God's sakes, don't make us sit on those hard marble seats <laughs> with nothing going on out there but chorus chanting. This concludes the taping of the session. It's followed by one more question from the audience, which we are unable to pick up. Thank you very much.